Don't let it happen to you, dear listener. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to be one of those, like, uh, sex took me to the ER people that gets profiled on, like, a TLC show. Not how anyone wants their 15 minutes of fame. No. No, not at all. I'm Brendan. And I'm Marissa. And welcome back to Dear Queers, the show where we answer all of your queer queries. That's right. Folks, it has been a hot second since we had a guest on, and we know you were getting pretty bored of just the two of us, so we decided to throw you a bone and bring someone on this episode. We sure did. We'll let him introduce himself and let you know what we have in store for you. Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Joshua Gonzalez. I am a urologist based in Los Angeles uh, who focuses primarily on um, sexual health. So I see um, and treat sexual health issues in all kinds of people. I'm gay myself, so I'm kind of excited to talk about what I do on a podcast like this that's sort of queer focused and I didn't know that I was the first guest that you've had on in a long time so I'm honored. We're so sporadic with guests we'll have like three in a row and then we'll do like five just the two of us so we've been we've been on an us kick so you are breaking the streak for us here. Yeah happy to do that. So anyway yeah so we have a few questions that were submitted that I have a like... quick question before oh, you we get do, into oh, user you do. questions. Okay. I sure do. All right. We'll uh, allow it. My thank thank you for You're the welcome. permission. Yeah. My first question is, is it Dr. Gonzalez, Joshua, or Josh? Good question. It depends on who I'm talking to, I guess. Um, <laughs> for the purposes if it's for us. the purposes of this podcast, yes. you can just refer to me as Josh. Um my you know, my patients do call me Dr. Gonzalez. That's what I go by Makes professionally. Sense. But um mm-hmm. yeah, we're we're all friends here, so you can call me Dr. <laughs> Perfect. Lovely. I mean, I have a million questions, but I also know we have also a limited amount of time. I know. Yeah. I know. I know. <laughs> I just like as as the resident non-penis haver in this group, I feel like I am very behind the curve in terms of like what I know and what to expect. So I'm just like very curious to hear what we're going to learn today. Yeah. I mean, ask all your penis questions. I'm happy to answer <laughs> <laughs> any, any, that, any that come my way. That's I, I mean, I... I one of the monikers I use on social media is Dick Doc. So if I if I can't answer it, then I don't know who will be able to. Well, it's, we're just yeah, absolutely fucked. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I guess we'll go into the questions that let's. We have yeah, they from they other people submitted them. They're patiently waiting for them to be answered. Fine. Would you like to read the first one? I sure will. Dear queers. I'm in my 20s, but sometimes I have difficulty maintaining an erection during sex. I can get an erection just fine on my own. It's mainly a problem with another person. Is this normal? And is there anything I can do about it? From Shy Guy. Okay, so I see this a lot where where patients report, you know, normal function, let's just say, by themselves. But when they're with a partner, it kind of is a different situation. In those cases, we consider that, like if you're talking about erection specifically, right, it's called situational erectile dysfunction versus generalized, where a person would have that all the time. 
And in those cases, it usually is not like a, a physical issue, right? Because physical issues don't usually come and go. They're not usually intermittently a problem. They're sort of more global or generalized. And it's really common, especially if patients are inexperienced sexually or still figuring out what they like sexually or exploring their sexuality, for them to have a certain amount of anxiety related to uh, sexual activity with partners that isn't present when they're alone and by themselves. Uh, I talk to a lot of my patients about that, try to figure out what may be going on with them psychologically when they're in these situations. I am not a mental health professional myself. I tend to focus more on organic causes of sexual dysfunction, but I do work very closely with um, mental health professionals that work specifically in sexual health. So I, I will often refer them to those specialists. It can also be behavioral. So a lot of men and people who have penises, when they masturbate, grip their penis in a way or move their hand in a way or watch pornography in a way that can't always be reproduced when they're having sex with a partner. So they may be stimulated visually or physically through the way they masturbate in, in such a way that can't be reproduced with a partner. And therefore, if they're not getting that same degree of stimulation, it can often be hard to, to maintain an erection. So that can also be fixed by working with a, you know, a specialist to kind of retrain your brain in a, in a way to match those levels of, of stimulation. So I am a mental health professional who does sex therapy. So what I'm hearing is part of the answer is come see me. Uh, I'm really curious in your experience, how often are your patients coming to you with those situational sexual functioning issues, whether it's erectile dysfunction, premature ejaculation, delayed ejaculation, as opposed to more generalized. My understanding, which I'd love to be told if it's not true, considering important for me to know with my work, is oftentimes when it is rooted not psychologically, it can be sort of like a canary in the coal mine kind of indicator for other physical health issues. Is that correct? Yes. So I think you brought up two important points there. So to answer your first question, it is actually a minority of patients that come to see me that I would classify as having strictly like a psychogenic problem, right? It's either anxiety mm -hmm. or behavioral or something non-physical. Um, mm -hmm. And if you look at the data on erectile dysfunction specifically, uh, mm -hmm. men across all age groups who have erectile dysfunction, only about 15% of them have strictly psychogenic erectile dysfunction. So that kind of matches with, with my practice and my experience. The other question regarding the canary in the coal mine sort of phenomenon is true, right? So um, there have been a lot of studies that have come out in the last 10 to 15 years showing a direct link between erectile dysfunction and underlying cardiovascular health. Um, and there are data that have suggested that men, especially if they're younger and don't necessarily have a known history of cardiovascular disease, um, who present with erectile dysfunction should maybe be screened for that because for erections to work normally, you have to have, obviously have normal blood flow. Um, and sometimes men can have abnormal blood flow that could be the first sign of an underlying cardiovascular problem. And the way I, I talk to my patients about it is that you know, the, the blood vessels that supply their penis with blood are tiny, even in comparison to the 
the blood vessels in the heart. So they're much more likely to present with erectile dysfunction as the first sign of, the, of an underlying problem before they would present with something like a heart attack or a stroke or something that involves a larger blood vessel. So like could be really important to kind of be aware of that in case like it is an indicator of something more underlying. Yeah, I mean, I think I always try to encourage people that if they are having a consistent problem and it isn't one of these sort of situational things, and even if it is, I mean, seeing, seeing a specialist, even if you're having a situational problem can be helpful. Um, and if it's not a physical issue, then I can refer them to someone um, like Marissa. But I, I think especially if they're having a generalized problem, no matter what age, even if they're 22 and they think that it must be all in their head it's probably worth discussing with a specialist like myself to make sure that it's not a physical problem yeah because then you can rule everything out instead of just assuming that it's strictly this issue or not yeah which is also i think important across the board whenever i know in my practice whenever i'm working with anyone who's presenting with any sort of sexual functioning issue particularly for the men and people with penises that i work with step one is always go talk to your doctor and then come back to me because you never know. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a uh, healthy way of looking at it. I do the sim- a similar thing kind of in reverse in that I always talk to patients, even though this is not my area of focus, I always talk to patients about the potential psychogenic components of their problem. And I, and I try to normalize that as much as possible and tell them, you know, if you're having a problem with your erections, of course that, that's going to create some anxiety, right? Like if, especially if, if your libido is there and you're in a good relationship or you're like dating multiple people and you want to be sexual and you just can't, of course, that's going to be frustrating and create anxiety. And that of course is going to affect future encounters. So I think that's really helpful for patients to understand that. It also helps if we go through the process in my office and rule out physical causes, then I can point to them and say, remember when we had that conversation on your first visit, We've now ruled out all the physical stuff, so I think we we should send you to see you know a mental health professional. Which makes sense, and I think right points to some of what's tricky about this is it can be sort of like self perpetuating thing, right? Where it happens once, you get real in your head about it. It feels like there's all this pressure to get hard next time you're with a partner, and then the pressure itself and the anxiety surrounding it just contributes to the problem. Absolutely, yeah, it can be a vicious cycle. So. The word of advice that I would have for your listeners is, is again, once once you're noticing that this problem has become is is a consistent issue, get in as soon as you can to see somebody. You know, even if you're told, even if if they go through the process and they tell you that there's nothing physically wrong with you, at least you know, and that in and of itself can reduce anxiety um, and start to help address the issue. But am I correct in saying it seemed like a lot of the time? there is some sort of physical underlying issue as well with the mental. It's rarely strictly just uh, mental. Absolutely, yeah. So 85% of men have a combination of uh, physical and psychological. How prevalent is this in your experience in like the male population, whether it's something that is consistently experienced enough to warrant seeking out medical attention or just happening every now and then? What is, to our question asker's question of like, is this normal? To what degree is this experienced? So I don't love the word normal uh, when sure. discussing se- when, when discussing sexual health. It is not quote unquote normal to have erectile dysfunction. So if you, again, are consistently having a problem with most or all sexual encounters in which you're not able to achieve or maintain an erection because 
people are often confused, like if they can get an erection, they just but have trouble keeping it that that's somehow not erectile dysfunction. But erectile dysfunction is the inability to achieve and maintain an erection long enough to complete, you know, satisfying sexual activity. So if, mm -hmm. if you are experiencing that and it's it's been a consistent problem, I would consider that abnormal and recommend, you know, seeking out evaluation. And you can start with the, the if you as a person feel like you are really in your head and that it might be an anxiety driven thing, then, you know, maybe start with a mental health professional. Uh, if you feel like it may could potentially be a physical issue, then then seek out someone like myself. Um, but I think starting with one of those two uh, specialists is, is important. So it, it's definitely not normal to have erectile dysfunction at any age. It is definitely more common as men get older because our bodies in general just don't function as well as they do when we're younger. And, and we already talked about cardiovascular health and that declines with age. So yes, we certainly see erectile dysfunction more prevalent as men get older, but it can happen at any age. And, you know, in terms of how common it is, I think the estimates are like 30 million men in the US suffer from uh, erectile dysfunction. And it's estimated that, you know, more than 50% of men at some point in their life will, will struggle with this issue. So it is very common. It is very common. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't mean it's normal. Um, and it doesn't mean that there can't be anything done about it. Yeah. So it sounds like you're saying abnormal in the sense of like, this is something that probably requires some attention paid to it. But in the sense of, is this something a lot of people experience for sure? Yes. Yes. It is very common. How like soon would you say after a patient is sort of experiencing this, do they then take the step to like come see you or is it kind of across the board? Like are, are people pretty on it? Like they're having issues and they come in or is it sometimes maybe this has been happening for a, a extended period of time and they finally are like, maybe I'll give yeah, this a I, shot. I mean, I see a, a mixed bag. So I am, a, I'm pretty specialized in what I do, right? So I get a lot of people who self-refer They're, I mean, one of the beauties of the internet, aside from um, all of the misinformation that's out there about sexual health and a variety of other things is that patients now have the tools to look up providers, go on Yelp, go on their websites, you know, do some research and find someone that they, I think, feel comfortable with. So I do get a lot of patients who just self-refer. Um, some of those patients have had terrible experiences before me. They've seen other providers that maybe they got from their insurance website or um, through some some other means and had a had a bad experience with those with those providers and were sometimes dismissed and told that they it, how it must be in their head and then without you know doing the proper workup some of those some of the people who i see who self-refer um they're seeing me for the first time it's pretty rare that they see me right when the, the problem starts um because there's a lot of shame that is associated with erectile dysfunction and so people who can't perform sexually, um, internalize a lot of that. And, you know, it starts to affect their self-esteem. It starts to affect their relationships if they're in relationships. And so it, it's, it's pretty common that people wait, um, before actually seeking out help in terms of what I would recommend, you know, the sooner, the better, um, because my goal is to figure out whatever physical issue is physical issue there may be and, and fix it, or, or at least help overcome it so that we can hopefully work on reducing that anxiety component. Um, and the longer you're kind of sitting, not being able to be functional, the more anxiety you're creating. And it's just going to, like we talked about earlier, going to be this vicious cycle. So I think the definition in most sexual health 
metrics is like six months that you have to have like a consistent problem. I don't think people need to wait six months. Like you'll know, you know, if, if it's been a month and you've been having trouble performing consistently, um, especially if it's like occurring when you're alone and masturbating, like don't, you don't have to wait. Like you can, you can go, go look for a specialist to kind of look, look at things further. Yeah. That's all great information. So takeaway listeners, don't be shy about heading in for an appointment. Why suffer needlessly? Yeah. yeah. And also if you don't, feel like you got the appropriate attention from whoever you see, or there was no actual workup done. They just gave you a prescription for a pill or told you that there was nothing wrong with you and it was all in your head. I mean, you should also not settle for that. And like, if you're not getting answers as to why you're having this problem, and that's, I think, where we differ from a lot of other providers is that we take the time to look at people's hormones, look at their blood flow and figure out what may be problematic in those areas without just like reflexively writing a prescription for something that might not be appropriate or dismissing people and telling them that there's nothing wrong with them. Um, I can say that with assuredness, if we go through this process and we look at the physical issues that could be contributing to your problem, if all of that is normal, then I can look at someone and say, you were you were here through this process we we ruled all of this out i think now let's it's time to shift focus and have you see you know a sex therapist or something to to work on this other part but like really doing your due diligence of making sure that we're getting through every possible factor that could be contributing and ruling things out yeah yeah that's so interesting to hear i work a lot i work pretty often with women who experience pelvic pain and something that is like very, very common is they'll be like, well, my gynecologist said like, whatever, no big deal. And so I'm I'm very, very used to having some of my female patients, me being like, okay, well, your gynecologist sucks. Let's talk about finding a better one. So that's, I don't think I was aware that that was not a uniquely gendered issue. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's common in, in erectile dysfunction, men's sexual health in general. Um, I also mm-hmm treat females uh, with sexual health issues and people with pelvic pain all the time. So I, <laughs> I hear those stories too, uh, yeah, where the gynecologists, sure their, their providers tell them that they're just like frigid or they don't like their partner. Or they should just have a glass of wine. And <laughs> it's all terrible, terrible advice. It's so bad. And actually harmful to a person's um, psyche, I think, because then they internalize all of them. They're like, oh, shit, there's something really wrong with me, you mm-hmm, know, um, mm-hmm. and um, there might be something physically wrong with them. And so, like, if you're not actually going through that process to figure that out, you're really doing them, like, a disservice. It just sucks. I can't imagine how many people, like, they have that kind of experience at first, and then you just walk away and think, oh, well, I guess I need to just suffer through this and then keep going that way for, it's, you know. It happens a lot. It happens a lot. I mean, I think it kind of, um, without getting too into the weeds of all of this, um, I think it, it really has to do um, with like how poorly we emphasize sexual health education within our medical education to begin yeah. with, right? Like, I mean, I, I didn't come from the, the therapy world, but I can tell you from like going to medical school, there's very little focus put on it. There's like a tiny little sliver when you're doing your gynecology rotation. There was a little bit in my urology rotation. And then I went into urology residency and it was of all of the things that we learn in urology residency, like the lowest on the totem pole in terms of what what was emphasized. So um, if I hadn't sort of chosen to go into this field and then, you know, do a fellowship in sexual medicine and like continue my own education, 
I wouldn't have the tools that I have at my disposal now to kind of help people with these issues. So regularly trained urologists and gynecologists and, and providers who are not seeking out to work specifically in this space, like they don't actually have the tools to properly diagnose and treat these people. I believe that 100%. I can say in my experience on the mental health side of things in my graduate coursework, outside of like the electives that I chose to take around sexual health and mental health intersecting, we had one day of coursework on sex impacting mental health, which is bananas, bananas. Yeah, I mean, it is it's it is a little for the lack of a better word, crazy, <laughs> that we don't, we don't, uh, that, it, that it's not given more weight because it's something that most every person, most everybody does, right? Most everybody enjoys and is like one of the few things in life that like is consistently pleasurable and like brings joy. And so if you remove that from someone's life and have all these other external stressors that they're left with, then, then how could that, of course, not affect their, their mental health? Absolutely. This is a total sidebar and we don't have time to get into it, but, <laughs> but that reminded anyways. me, no, I, we can, we don't, oh, no, we okay. really don't have time, but it just reminded <laughs> me of something I was reading recently about how for men who have had, I think like had to have prostate surgery so often it impacts sexual pleasure in a way that is like not given any consideration by mainstream medicine. Like is, is, am I correct in that that is often an experience? Talking about men who have sex with men, specifically? Particularly, yeah. yes. There was, mm-hmm. a, there was a, an article in the New York Times. It's about a, a, a practice actually in Chicago that is the first of its mm-hmm. kind, specifically mm-hmm. addressing sexual health concerns of gay and bisexual men post-prostatectomy, mm-hmm. which is like removal mm-hmm. of the prostate for cancer purposes. Because, yeah, I mean, like, if, if you are a man who has, like, receptive anal sex and you get off through prostatic stimulation and you remove that erogenous organ, that changes how you have sex and it changes how you experience pleasure. And so people have, you know, our, our, our field has not traditionally focused on that. It's, it's like, is your cancer cured? Great. Uh, next question, are you having urinary leakage? No, great. Oh, uh, your erections aren't working. Well, at least the cancer is treated, right? And so it's, and, and it's not really, the, the quality of life is then left lacking, right? So yes, thank God I survived my cancer, but now I can't be intimate with my partner or masturbate for the rest of my life. Like that's not a great life to live. So um, yeah, I think it's it's important. The article that I read anyway was a, a nice um, article written about this this particular clinic, I think in Chicago that mm-hmm. is doing this work and hopefully it will be replicated because I think it's really important because sexual health issues that affect gay and bisexual men are very different than how than sexual health issues that, that you know heterosexual men deal with was that the same article that you were reading too or i think it probably that? was that sounds incredibly familiar yeah. so i think probably that is what sparked that memory for me Uh, but Brendan, that's probably a good lead-in to our second question. I was just going to say, question. that was a sidebar yes. and a segue, because we're going to talk about prostate. <laughs> um, okay, so this next question. What does it mean to milk your prostate? I don't even know if that's a real thing. I think it is uh, from <laughs> Dairy Queen. 
I just have to I have I like to say pseudonym. this question <laughs> it's it's all Brendan. Brendan makes up no, we we collaboratively make up all the pseudonyms, but that mm. one is pure Brendan. This question <laughs> has been sitting in our inbox since before this podcast even began. Like when we first were like, we're gonna do a podcast. Friends, what are your questions about like queerness and sexuality this was like one of the first things someone sent us so i'm really delighted that finally it is getting pulled out of the archives <laughs> so i think it's funny that that you this question came up i'm actually not that surprised because i get we get like random <laughs> people calling our office asking if we do prostate milking in the office oh. and i always like i'm like First of all, I've never even met this person. They're definitely going to have to schedule it <laughs> before I discuss anything involving the prostate and what, what we're going to do to it in our office. But mm -hmm. um, it depends, I think, on what in what context you're talking. So clinically, when men are suspected to have prostatitis, which is inflammation or in sometimes infection of the prostate, one of the ways that we um, historically have diagnosed it is collecting urine samples, right? You collect one just like a voided sample. And then you're supposed to quote unquote milk the prostate, which essentially involves a rectal exam where you put a significant amount of pressure on the prostate to have it secrete some of its prostatic fluid into the urethra. And then you have the person urinate again and collect a post prostate milking or prostate massage urine sample. And then you look for bacteria and see if there's evidence of an infection. So that's how we do it clinically. To be honest, it's not done that commonly anymore. There's other ways that we can diagnose suspected bacterial prostatitis. Um, and honestly, most cases of prostatitis are not infectious. So at least in my practice, it's not something that I do very commonly. I, I would suspect that that is the case with my generation and younger generations of urologists. It's, it's sort of like an older kind of practice. Now, if you're talking about in the bedroom, you could certainly do the same thing for pleasure, right? So um, the prostate, as I mentioned, is an erogenous organ. It can be accessed through the rectum. So inserting a finger or a, a toy of some kind that is angled in such a way to hit the prostate and applying a certain degree of pressure can also cause the prostate to milk out its secretions into the urethra. And some men who have receptive anal sex will experience that when they're bottoming. Um, because of that prosthetic simulation, you'll actually have prosthetic fluid sort of drip out when you're when you're having sex. Um, so it it can be done um, clinically. I don't see that there's a ton of reason to do it really anymore. Um, and there's a bunch of stuff on the internet talking about how it improves erectile function, how it improves X, Y, and Z, blah 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 blah. Um, none of that's really based in any data, but. Um, I, I certainly think it could be done as a pleasurable experience. Well, connected to that in terms of like, do you ever have patients asking you about like prosthetic orgasm or like functioning with that area or? Um, I mean, I see a lot of men who identify as gay, right? So like a lot of them are in, in tune with their prostates already. <laughs> um, I'm not sure what you mean exactly by a prosthetic orgasm. There's not like a, like a true orgasm in the sense that like it, it's not the whole kind of body experience you can you can stimulate someone a lot by stimulating their prostate but the ejaculation orgasm sort of complex happens you know essentially at the end of you know at the climax of sex um so you can 
you can cause prosthetic fluid to come out, that I wouldn't say is a true orgasm um, because it's not really present with like a full like ejaculatory release. Essentially, isn't a thing. You're just stimulate. You can stimulate the the prostate in a way that would then lead to orgasm. And to be honest, you don't even have to have a prostate to achieve that same degree of stimulation and arousal, right? So um, there are women and people with vaginas who do not have a prostate who um, enjoy anal sex and get the same type of pleasure that, you know, somebody with a prostate who's bottoming could, could experience or, or someone who's stimulating their prostate directly. A lot of it has to do with the stimulation of the, the nearby pelvic muscles um, as well. So one of the other confusions that, that come with prostate milking is people who have chronic pelvic pain will sometimes read that prostate milking can help with that. It's really not what you're doing to the prostate. It's that the pressure that you're applying is also releasing tension in the muscles in the pelvis, which then can imp- improve pelvic pain. Uh, what you were just saying about people who don't have prostates brought a question for me that I have absolutely no idea if you can answer. But I'm curious, thinking about a lot of the advances in trans healthcare that we have seen over the last decade, is it anything that could potentially be, maybe it already exists or could be up in the future for trans men to be able to surgically have a prostate added into their anatomy? Is that a thing that could ever happen? Not that I'm aware of because of its, like, certainly you could put, like, some tissue that, you know, wasn't there before in the area of the prostate. But the innervation, Mm -hmm. the nerves that go to that area are not going to be the same, are are not, are going to be different just because it wasn't always there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, the other thing to, to think about is, is it worth even doing that because one of the things we worry about involving the prostate is cancer, as we already kind of talked about. And sure. so if you are going to, in a magical world in the future, mm-hmm. if you could transplant a prostate into a trans man, um, mm-hmm. you would then have to screen that person for prostate cancer regularly, mm-hmm. like anybody else who has a prostate. So you would obviously have to take that into consideration. Sure. So maybe not even worth the trade-off if it were exactly. an option. Exactly. And there's so many, I mean, you know this working in sex therapy like there's so many ways that you can stimulate a person that sometimes don't even involve the genitals like nipple Mm. play ear play like there's so many different ways to stimulate somebody that like you know if you don't have a prostate there's other things you can do (laughs) i mean that in itself is interesting to hear yeah because i feel like there is that myth of like why would you stick anything up your butt if there's no prostate in there kind of thing and that isn't true essentially you know no 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 no. i mean um people that that don't have prostates uh can have equally satisfying you know anal sex i think it's just about figuring out and and there are plenty of people who have prostates who don't enjoy anal sex so um i think it's just about kind of figuring out what you like and you know um a lot of that has to do with just sort of like this you know kind of probing your own body and and discovering that on your own and then sort of trying to communicate that and translate that to sex with a partner. And, you know, there there are plenty of of men who identify as gay who don't have receptive anal sex because they don't enjoy it. So figure out what you like. This is my obligatory adding. Every time we talk about sticking anything up your butt on the show, I have to tell our audience, you have to have something with a flared base. For the love of God, do not put something up your butt if there is not a way to make sure it's not going to get stuck up there. 
Oh yeah. No, I've, I've encountered that in residency. <laughs> so it's not fun and involves major surgery if it can't be retrieved. Yeah. So I agree. Make sure it has a base. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like major surgery. Yeah. Like not even. Yeah. Yeah. Major, major. <laughs> don't let it happen to you, dear listener. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to be one of those like uh, sex took me to the ER people that gets profiled on like a TLC show or something. Not how anyone wants their 15 minutes of fame. No, no, not at all. Um, anything else you want to say about prostates? No. Or should yeah, we... Any, anything else that you think our listeners would want to know that you want to talk about? Anything else? Well, I guess maybe, you know? yeah, related to, yeah, being gay or queer and sexual health. Yeah, I mean, so I personally am invested, obviously, in treating, like, LGBTQ plus people with sexual health issues. As a gay man myself, like, I have been fortunate to have, like, found other LGBTQ plus friendly providers. So I've never, I can't say I've ever really had like that negative of an experience, but I have been in situations clinically as a patient where assumptions are made that are not true. Um, And I just know from hearing from friends and other people in the gay community that they don't always have that experience. They don't always have a positive experience. And it's so hard to bring these topics up for most people. And when you whittle that down to queer people who may not have a provider that's queer friendly, it, it's, it becomes increasingly difficult for them to talk about sensitive topics like this um, if they don't feel like they're going to be heard or understood or listened to. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that if you are a queer person and you're having a sexual health issue, try to find a specialist in your area. And if they're LGBTQ plus friendly, that's ideal. Um, they don't necessarily have to be, they can be, they don't necessarily have to be queer themselves. They can be like just an ally. I mean, there are plenty of heterosexual providers out there that go to the, you know, conferences and are specifically interested in queer health and and do a great job at that also. So just do some research on the people that you're going to see. And like I said, if you don't get, um, feel like you're listened to or get answers that, that you think you deserve, then you should get a second opinion. Um, the one other thing I was going to mention, um, which is like a pet project of mine, which you might find interesting and maybe we can talk about it, um, is I, about two years ago, started the process of developing a supplement to address ejaculatory health, um, which is an area in sexual health that didn't really have a lot of options. So I was seeing an increasing number of men reporting, like when they ejaculate, like the volume was declining right and and some of that has been discussed in terms of fertility like there's a lot of data that have come out suggesting that as a species our fertility potential has been declining for the last 40 years and so one could assume that that also translates to lower volume ejaculate for men because volume is obviously an important parameter of reproductive health Um, but i was more interested in how it affected satisfying sex sexual health specifically not so much so Um, My partner and I started this process like two years ago and looked at the data mostly in fertility on what supplements have been studied that actually show improvements in volume and in um, sperm health. And so we put together a supplement uh, that we launched like a few months ago called Popstar that enhances the volume and taste of ejaculate. So that's been kind of like a fun side project. And when we started this process, we were like, 
maybe we'll sell like five bottles and no, you know, <laughs> and it, and it, and it won't work despite all of our like <laughs> all of our due diligence and research and stuff. But um, we've had a really great reception from patients um, and people who just find have found us through social media or on on the internet or whatever, and are writing really amazing reviews. And I'm hearing from friends that use the product and from patients of mine that have used the product that it works really well. So it's it's exciting to kind of see that, and it's just now kind of starting to to take off so that's something that i'm working on for 2022 and like a pet project of mine that's really cool so this is it's how readily like available like ordering yeah yeah i mean it's um the website's (laughs) popstarlabs.com um it's a supplement you take daily uh four pills a day and it works within a couple of weeks and we are probably in early 22 gonna uh, conduct like a, for, a more formal study of it, but we just wanted to get to launch the products based on our knowledge of reproductive health data, um, knowing that these ingredients uh, have been proven to work, um, and see what what kind of reception there would be. And it was really well received. So now that we've been able to like, you know, uh, order larger batches of it, um, we're going to use some of those um, uh, some of that supply to do a more formal study. So we're pretty excited about that. Just out of curiosity, when you when you say like improving taste, are we talking like like sweeter, like like? Yeah. So the one the two two ingredients that that we have in the supplement that serve that purpose are um, bromelain, which is like the enzyme from pineapple, and which has been shown to be sort of excreted in in certain bodily fluids. And there's like the old like Sex in the City joke about like, or, and and outside of Sex in the City, but like that that's, <laughs> that seems fitting given that it just came back to yeah, the yeah, but, yeah. um but um yeah that that, that eating pineapple can improve the taste of your semen the truth is you'd have to eat like a lot of pineapple for that to happen so we sort of distilled it down to the enzyme that actually causes that and put that ingredient in the in the supplement and then um, we've added fructose which is present already in semen um but added fructose to the supplement to um, enhance its sweet flavor that is going to probably not be something that we can study specifically i was i've been thinking about that for the last five minutes is that where your mind was going i was like i want to understand like from an (laughs) academic perspective how are you collecting the data uh, like from a like on that i was just sitting here the wheels were turning we will definitely have like a questionnaire like um yes Mm -hmm. that that we will um, probably come up with some questions asking about whether or not they have actually sampled it um, and noticed the taste difference, and if so, what kind of difference they've noticed. But that's a lot harder to quote unquote study than than it, than than volume is. So right, one has a more kind of like objective, measurable metric. The other one is like a more little more subjective. Yeah. I just like, oh god, what a study! <laughs> I would kill someone to be a part of. That sounds. <laughs> amazing it's not gonna be yeah it's 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 there there's some ethical concerns that could come up if you're forcing people to to, to do that um so it will be voluntary it will be subjective mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. but hopefully we'll we'll get some answers good to know about the the pineapple trick although also it sounds like you'd have to eat like an obscene amount of pineapple to brendan is it the first time you've ever heard anyone no, no, no. That? I have heard okay, of it, but okay, it's like, is okay. it really true? Or is it just sort of like urban legend kind of thing? You sure, know? sure, sure. And there yeah. are definitely mm-hmm. things that like make can make it taste worse, like bad habity kind of stuff, right? Like oh. smoking, drinking a lot, certain foods, like 
cinnamon, you know, like, uh, I'm sorry, cinnamon sweetens it. There's other foods that, that, um, that can negatively affect the taste of semen. What are, yeah. What just out of, what are some other, like, Brennan's like about eat. to take a whole no, list taking down. Taking notes. Yeah. I, mean. well, I think like, I want to say like asparagus. So whatever you had for dinner makes, last night, Brennan. Oh, the same way it makes sense. your, the same way it makes your pee gross, yeah. um, or smell yeah. weird anyway. Uh, and there's some other like broccoli I don't think is great. And then like a lot of meat, like a lot of red meat um, can actually negatively affect the, the taste. So you know, I feel like that'll like kind of make sense as you're saying. I'm like, okay, I can see how that would negatively impact that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, a lot of it is like I just counsel people on like bad behaviors aside from like the broccoli and asparagus, which are generally good, but yeah. are known to, to taste, to change flavors of other things or smells of other mm. things. Eating a ton of red meat, probably not so healthy for you. Smoking, not great. Alcohol, not great. So, you know, those things have to come out of your body somehow. Right, so like sense. generally things that would negatively impact your overall health will also negatively impact your sexual health and functioning. Yep, yeah. yep. Oh, no, you have to, you don't have a lot of time left. We have like one, I guess it is sort of tied into this discussion, but like a quick bonus question. I don't know if you'd be able to answer this, but someone did want to, was curious about semen allergies or being allergic to semen is that even it is a possibility yeah so it's it's um it definitely is possible it's exceedingly rare it depends on a lot of other factors right like if the person's using a condom maybe they're allergic to the condom um some people have other inflammatory or infectious conditions vaginally that can cause irritation and they may be associating that with sex and then thinking they have an allergy. So there's a lot of other reasons that vaginas can be irritated from from a, um, uh, and it may not just be like the semen or the penis that's causing that. So it's 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 possible, but it's, it's very rare. So much, much more likely that it's not the semen itself, but yeah, something else. Well, thank you so much for giving us your lunch hour today. We yeah. really appreciate the time really, that you took. Really. This was such a delightful conversation. Um, <laughs> if... If our listeners want to find out more about you, where should they go find you? Um, so I am on social media a lot, specifically on TikTok and Instagram at Joshua Gonzalez MD. Um, and I use those platforms to kind of educate people on sexual health topics and do it in kind of like a fun and entertaining way. At least I like to think it's fun and entertaining. Um, we so, thought so that's probably yeah. a, a okay. Good. Um, so <laughs> that's that's. Uh, probably the easiest way to find me uh, my website also has a media section that has all the podcasts i've done and articles i've contributed to blogs i've written um, and that's just joshuagonzalezmd.com um, and then if they want to learn more about the um, the supplement that we talked about regarding ejaculatory health um, you can just go to the website which is popstarlabs.com awesome well thank you so much this has been a wonderful start to my afternoon. Um, <laughs> it's always a good afternoon when you get to talk about sex at lunch, right? Yeah. It really is. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. We love talking about grand. sex in the afternoon. We sure Or any time. This yeah. was a delight. Thank you so much, Dr. Gonzalez, for taking the time to be with us. Um... We hope you learned something about dicks today, guys. Yeah, I did. Did you? I sure did. I learned a lot. I learned a lot. Um, I mm -hmm. feel knowledgeable. But yeah, so anyway, go check out 
any of his stuff if any of that interests you. And as always, send us more questions. You can email us at dearqueers.pod at gmail.com or on Instagram, dear.queers or our website, dearqueers.gay. And if you do not support, provide questions, love, affection, tell the people what will happen to them. Well, My dear. <laughs> if you do not do what we've asked, we are going to go to an elementary school classroom that is taught by a woman named Ms. Frizzle, and we are going to get in her magic school bus. It is going to shrink down to the size of a tiny, tiny, tiny little atom, and we are going to fly that magic school bus up your urethra, and we are going to hang out inside of your body. Like, wherever that urethral tube is leading, we are going to just fuck around in there. And we are going to, in Brendan's words, tingle your dingle, but (laughs) not in the way you want your dingle tingled. Until you do the simple, simple, simple mechanism of just sending us a question or rating this podcast. Guys, it's not hard. But you might be. But you might be with us inside your dick. Yes. Or whatever other genitalia you might have. Did you... I've, have I sent you the, like, of them, like, being like, that's an anus or something, like Magic School Bus? I'm sure you... Is it that's a booty hole? Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's what I was thinking of the whole time. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. But we're going in the other end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You will have to... So watch out. Probably go see a urologist. Yeah, Dr. Gonzalez is going to have to pull our microscopic school bus out of your urethra. And <laughs> With us inside of it? And his day. <laughs> no, I mean, that would be a scientific breakthrough, probably, right? Yeah, if we managed absolutely. to do that. So yeah, be careful. Don't mm-hmm. let that happen to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, stay safe. Stay <laughs> safe. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>